Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found, God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace, P-E-A-C-E, at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through December 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. 
We are continuing our series tonight on the subject of origins, creation or evolution. I know that there are some who are new with us tonight and some who have missed some of the prior messages. So let me just give a a brief review and I'll try to make it brief and concise because I have so much that I I want to say and I'm glad I have a, a full hour to say it tonight. But I want to begin by saying this, and I guess this sort of establishes the premise of everything I say, evolution is an impossibility. If you remember that, you'll you'll understand that we're left with no alternative but creation. Evolution cannot occur. And we have been examining why in the last couple of messages. We have been discussing the impossibility of evolution particularly from the viewpoint of information theory. And I've been telling you that every living thing has a DNA code. Every living organism has a genetic code programmed with the exact information to produce, preserve, and repair that living thing. It has no less than that necessary information and no more than that necessary information. The genes in every organism limit that organism to what it is. It cannot be less than it is, and it cannot be more than it is. There is no genetic information to transform it into something other than what it is. The Bible talks about kinds of living things that can reproduce after their own kind. And that essentially is saying the same thing. There can be variations within a kind, but not anything beyond that. Science has tried to tell us that evolution is a process called mutation. That living organisms have the capacity to mutate, simply means to change, But you need to understand this, mutations do not change the nature or the kind of any living organism. They don't make it anything other than it is. What mutations involve, and this is important, is always a loss of existing information. There is never a gain of information. Mutations never add new genetic information. Mutations, therefore, do not work toward an upward evolutionary process. Mutations are not a mechanism for upward evolutionary process. Dr. Werner Gitt, a director and professor at the German Federal Institute of Physics and Technology, answered this question, can new information originate in a living organism through mutations. And this is his response, and I quote, Mutations can only cause changes in existing information. There can be no increase in information, and in general, the result of mutations is injurious. New blueprints for new functions or new organs cannot arise. Mutations cannot be the source of new information, end quote. Honest scientists 
must admit that all of life had to be designed individually by an immense intelligent mind that programmed everything. Now, when you think about the complexity of this, it is absolutely staggering. Just think about the human brain for a moment. The human brain is more complex than a 747, for example. A 747 is made up of six million components. Can you imagine a 747 evolving out of a scrap pile of metal? It's absolutely ridiculous. The more science looks at life, the more complex it becomes. The body, for example, is made up of trillions of cells. In just one of those cells, one out of trillions, the amount of information, the amount of genetic information in one of those cells has been estimated to fill at least 1,000 books of 500 pages. That's to run one cell out of trillions in one human body. And most scientists think, think that is an underestimation of the complexity. Where did all this information come from? Better, from whom did all this information come? To make evolution the answer is ridiculous. To make chance the energy is also ridiculous. So ridiculous as to qualify someone for a trip to the mental institution. Why then do scientists continue to advocate this ridiculous theory of evolution motivated by chance. Why do they do that? Well, the bottom line is they do that to avoid God. They do that to push God out of their lives, to avoid His law, to avoid His standards, to avoid His will, to avoid His Word, and to avoid His judgment on their lives. Evolution is nothing more than what Henry Morris so aptly called it, the long war against God. Evolution is the contemporary expression of the long war against God. The Old Testament says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That is foolish. It is not rational to reject a Creator. It is not rational to empower chance. It is not rational to assume that one kind of living, living organism can become another. It is not wise to reject God's law and God's Word and God's gospel. If it is neither rational nor wise, then why do men do it? And the answer is that men do it because they love sin and they love darkness because their deeds are evil. They love themselves, and they love their sin, 
And they refuse to worship God or submit to His Word or His law. They will not recognize Scripture. And by the way, Scripture shows us that what is in God's world is in God's Word. All we know about creation from nothing is what the Creator has told us, and the only place He's told us is in the Scripture. Evolution is a war on God. It is this, the sort of contemporary fight, the contemporary modern attack in the long, long war that Satan has carried on against God. In 1989, scientist Henry Morris wrote an excellent book called The Long War Against God. And in that book, he shows the impact of evolutionary theory on the world. And he reveals the irrefutable fact that the almost universal belief in evolution that permeates every area of human thinking has affected every area of human life. Not just how we view the physical world, not just how we view the biological sciences. It has affected social sciences. It has affected behavioral sciences. It has affected psychology. It has affected the humanities. It has affected liberal arts. It has affected philosophy. And it has even affected religion. Quoting Henry Morris, he says this, Evolution's lie permeates and dominates modern thought in every field. That being the case, it follows inevitably that evolutionary thought is basically responsible for the lethally ominous political developments and the chaotic moral and social disintegrations that have been accelerating everywhere." End quote. He goes on in his book to show how everything from genocide to fornication to homosexuality to abortion to all matters of the destruction of human dignity, not seeing man as made in the image of God, to crime, to drugs, and everything else is all a part of the result of a materialistic, humanistic universe without God. And so, says Morris, evolution is nothing more than the pervasive modern version of the conflict of the ages, the long war against God. Evolution is empty philosophy. It is vain deceit. It is designed to attack the Creator and His glory. It denies His glorious revelation in Scripture. It denies His authority over the universe of man. It denies the dignity of man. It denies the image of God in man. It is a cunningly devised fable. It is religious harlotry. It is the latest abomination of the earth spawned by the father of lies, Satan. Now, if I could have said it any stronger, I would have. You see, the world has always believed the deceiver. The world has always believed the liar, Satan, and joined him in his long war against God. The story of the history of the nations of the world, the cyclical story of how the world repeats its same demise is given us in Romans chapter 1. And I want you to look at it. This is a very familiar chapter. I know that, and I'm not going to stay here very long. But I do need to remind you that this chapter 
uh, chapter 1 of Romans, verses 18 and following, lay out how the scenario of the long war against God is played over and over and over. And what you have here is the history, the cyclical history of what happens in the nations of the world throughout the history of the world. Verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed. And it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Now, the truth is obvious. The truth about a Creator is obvious. The truth about a God who is a person because we are persons is obvious. The truth about a God who is moral because we have a moral sense and a moral conscience is obvious. The truth about a God who has established right and wrong is obvious because it's in the fabric of our life. The truth that there is a creator, a first cause for this massive effect called the universe is obvious because rationality is built on cause and effect and leads you back ultimately to the first cause. Men suppress the truth. Verse 19 says, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And He did that by giving them reason. And reason says, reason is basically a sequence of cause and effect patterns. Anytime you do research, you work on cause and effect. Anytime you come to understand a principle, you understand it because there's a cause and effect relationship. There's a sequence of things that builds to a conclusion. That's rationality. Reason is the ability to link things together to come to right conclusions. And God has put into the mind of man rationality so that he can rationally go back to the fact that there had to be a first cause. And that leads him back to God. And then God has poured into the heart of man, as Romans 2 says, law, moral law, written by God on the heart. And so verse 19 says, what is known about God is evident within them, that God is, according to verse 20, the creator of the world. You can look at the creation of the world and see His invisible attributes. You can look at creation and you know that God is powerful. You can look at creation and you know that God is intelligent beyond comprehension. You can look at creation and know that the mind of God is so massively and vastly and infinitely complex as to be absolutely incomprehensible to our puny brains. You can look at creation and you can know that God loves beauty and order. You can look at creation and see that God has a delicate touch. At the same time, God has a powerful, almost overbearing touch that can kill and crush. You can see so much about His attributes. You can see His goodness manifest in the rain and the sunshine and the food we enjoy and the beauty of the world around us and the love that He's poured into life and the wonder of romance and the blessing of children and the, and the exhilarating joy of adventure. You can see that God is a, is a God of beauty and kindness and goodness. So much can be known about His eternal power and divine nature. So much can be known, verse 20 says, that if you don't see God in this and you don't come to recognize Him for who He is, you're without excuse. The creation is not intended to point you back to a one-celled thing in some primordial soup. It's intended to point you back to God, and it's intended to show you everything about the mind of God and nothing about some imaginary evolutionary process empowered by chance. Any view like that, 
Any progressive creationistic view, any theistic evolutionary view, strikes a blow at the intention of God in creation to manifest His great power. It isn't that God is some one-dimensional God, as the theistic evolution would tell, uh, evolutionist would tell us. He sort of launched it all, and then evolution took over. That doesn't give glory to God. That gives glory to the survival of the fittest, which is a viewpoint invented by Charles Darwin and his friends to explain appearances when they didn't know things that they know today that contradict all of that. God is not glorified. God is not honored when we give evolution the credit for creation, when we give evolution the credit for the complexity of the universe, the complexity of, of the smallest, smallest microcosm of creation, or when we give evolution the credit for the macrocosm of creation. God is honored and God is glorified when we give Him the credit for all of it. Verse 21 indicates that rationality and morality built into the fabric of human life, rationality and morality take us to God. It's inevitable. And so he says in 21, even though they knew God, I mean, there was nowhere else to go but to God, but typically what they do is they don't honor Him as God, they do not thank Him for His creation, but they become empty in their speculations. They trade in God for stupid speculations. And then their foolish heart becomes dark. The light goes out. And they profess themselves to be wise, and they get PhDs, and they write books, and they are actually fools. Fools with a garbled, impossible, incoherent, irrational viewpoint. They call it wisdom. God calls it folly. And therefore, verse 23 says, they literally steal the glory of the incorruptible God. They, they turn from the incorruptible God, the supernatural God, the God who is bigger than His creation, who is outside His creation. And in God's place, they substitute an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and forfeited animals and crawling creatures. They worship the creation instead of the Creator, verse 25 says. They exchange the truth of God and they believe the lie, Satan's lie that perpetuates the long war against God, and they worship and serve the creature. That's what evolutionists do. They literally believe that the creature is the Creator, don't they? Sure they do. But you know, this is exactly what Romans says. They threw wisdom away and accepted stupidity and folly because their foolish heart was darkened, their speculations were empty and futile and useless because they had turned their backs on the only rational explanation for anything, which was God, because they didn't want God crowding them with His moral standards. They began to worship the birds and the animals, and they served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so, you know what? God gave them up. God gave them up to sexual sin, homosexuality, and every other kind of sin that He lists in verse 28 to 32. That's the way it goes. They just plunged into the depth of horrible iniquity. That's, that's the real story of where evolution comes from. It's part of the long war against God. And if we had time, I'd quote you voluminous quotes from evolutionists who give such blasphemous and mocking statements about God. 
There's no need to listen to those. The Bible, on the other hand, clearly and repeatedly states that God is the creator of everything. Everything. Let me just show you this, and I'm going to take a little time with this because I, it's so important to understand this. Genesis 1-1 says it. It can't be said any more clearly or comprehensively. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's very clear, unmistakable. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now listen to this. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, how else can you say it? There's no evolution in John 1, 3. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Listen, nothing is in existence that He didn't create. In Hebrews... Chapter 11, a familiar verse, by faith, it's the only way, not by empirical analysis, by faith we understand. In other words, you have to believe the Bible. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, that God spoke and everything was created. Now listen to this. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, there is, a, there is an absolute statement that totally discounts evolution. What you see in the created world was not made out of some other material. But rather, everything you see in God's created universe was made by Him out of nothing, out of nothing. And that's exactly what it says in the book of Genesis. That's a great verse, Hebrews 11.3. Colossians 1.16, speaking of Christ, who is God, the Creator, verse 16, for by Him all things were created. You notice how many times the Scripture repeats the word all? All things were created. What do you mean by that? Well, in the heavens, that would be everything that exists in the universe. Everything. And on the earth, everything in our little microcosm, this earth, everything outside this earth and everything on this earth, He created. Everything. And listen to this. Visible and invisible. You can see a mountain, He made it. You can't see the wind, but He made it. You can see an ocean, He made it. You can't see an electric current going through the air, but He made it. Visible and invisible. And that includes angelic beings called thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things, repeating it again, have been created by Him and for Him. I mean, this is absolutely beyond question. Beyond question. And as you flow through the Bible, it is relentless in its affirmation of this truth. In Deuteronomy 4.32, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days, Moses says, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. 
There was a day when God created man on the earth. He is not the final stop in a multi-billion year process of evolution. There was a day, we know it to be the sixth day as Genesis tells, in Psalms, and I can't take you to all of the Psalms that extol God as Creator, but Psalm 104 is, is a good illustration of this. Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, Thou art very great. Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Thyself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. You know the ridiculous, the ridiculous, irrational perspective of evolution only tries to solve the, the question of how life generated on earth. How in the world do they hope to explain how you get an infinite universe? God stretched it out. Verse 3, He lays the beams of His upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot. He walks on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. Verse 5, He established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. Thou didst cover it with the deep as with a garment. He made the oceans. He made the earth. The psalm goes on like that. He put the springs in the valleys, verse 10 says. It was He who made the wild animals and the birds. He's the one that caused the grass to grow, verse 14. And so it goes all the way to verse 24. O Lord, how many are Thy works? There's no credit here given to some irrational chance. Verse 24, O Lord, how many are Thy works? Listen to this. In wisdom Thou hast made them, there's that word again, all. And the, the more we know scientifically, the deeper we penetrate into the incredible mysteries of this creation, the more wise the Creator becomes. The earth is full of Thy creatures. That's what that word is. The earth is full of Thy creatures goes on to talk about the sea, great and broad, and in which are swarms without number, animals small and great, and there the ships move along, and Leviathan, the sea monster, the great whales, goes on like this. Verse 31, let the glory of the Lord endure forever, let the Lord be glad in His works. I mean, it's all His. He made it all. There's never any other explanation for it. Psalm 148, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise the Lord in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all the stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were, what? Created. The prophet Isaiah speaks of God's creative power. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Boy, this is just a great verse. Mark this one down. Do you not know? You want to say this to a world of evolutionists. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. His mind is so far beyond us that we can't even begin to approach it. Again, Isaiah 42, 5. 
Thus says God the Lord. What God are you talking about, Isaiah? God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, always the creator of everything. In Isaiah 45, Isaiah is not through honoring God as creator. Verse 5. I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. He's talking about what He's going to do in the great and glorious recreation of the earth and the kingdom. It's His creation. He can do with it as He pleases, when He pleases. And verse 9, a warning to the evolutionist, woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker. Look at verse 12, same chapter. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. Look at verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Malachi, the prophet, emphasizes the same thing. God is the Father of us all. Malachi 2.10, do we not all have one Father? Listen to this, has not one God created us? Man is not the end of an evolutionary chain. He is the direct creation of God, as is everything else. Mark 10 and verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, Jesus speaking, God made them, male and female. God created man. He did not just evolve. In Mark chapter 13, verse 19. This emphasis, just it's just hammered home. And I'm not giving you all the Scriptures, but Mark, you think I am, but I'm not. Mark 13, 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, and just in case you haven't, you haven't learned it, which God created. <laughs> the creation which God created. Over and over and over, this emphasis is made in Scripture. We saw it in the Old Testament, in prophets. I showed it to you there in the Gospel of Mark. You have it in the epistles. Ephesians 3, 9, God who created all things. God who created all things. The Apostle Peter, along with Paul, makes the same emphasis. Therefore, 1 Peter 4.19, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful Creator. God is our faithful Creator. And then, of course, 
I want you to turn to Revelation because this is where everything sort of sums up. Revelation chapter 4, and let's go to heaven and see what heaven thinks about evolution. Verse 11, Worthy art thou, O Lord, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. Chapter 5, same emphasis is made. God, the great and sovereign God, is the Creator. His is the glory. His is the power. His is the dominion. He is the one who purchased for God men with His blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And all of heaven begins to ring with praise to God. To Him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And finally, verse 13, every created thing, and that's all there are. There aren't evolved things. There are just created things. It doesn't say every created thing and all the mutated things. Every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and everywhere. This is the, this is the re redemption of all the created universe. But go to Re Revelation chapter 10. This is a fabulous chapter. Strong angel comes down out of heaven. But the angel, this great strong angel who comes down and has a, a little book which represents the book that describes the judgment of God. And the angel, verse 5, John sees standing on the sea and on the land, indicating that God's judgment is going to fall on the sea and the land, as Revelation points out it does. And the angel swears by God. He identifies God, Him who lives forever and ever, and further identifies God by this statement, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. Absolutely unmistakable. Now, finally, in our... Moving through Scripture, Revelation 14. You know, when the tribulation time comes and uh, terrible, terrible judgments are going to come flying from the throne of God, you can see the, the war machine cranking up in Revelation 4 and 5. The war machine in heaven starts to crank up. The similar language to that in Ezekiel chapter 1, as God's war machine moved in the past, it'll crank up to bring judgment in the future. But during the time when God pours out judgment, that seven-year period, particularly in the last three and a half years, at the same time, the gospel will be preached. It will be preached by two witnesses mentioned in chapter 11. It will be preached also by the 144,000 Jews mentioned in chapter 7 and, and later on as well. But there's one other great preacher that is identified in the 14th chapter of Revelation, verse 6. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. Um, you've, you've seen messages when you were at the football game pulled by the little airplane that flew across and had the banner. You've seen messages put on the side of a blimp. Well, that's sort of the idea, but not quite. You have here a flying angel in mid-heaven, and he's got the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth in every nation and tribe and tongue and people. That's pretty exciting stuff. If you want to know the gospel, just look up. 
And this is what the angel preaches. Here's the everlasting gospel. This is the same message that's always been preached. It's never changed. Fear God and give Him glory. Beloved, that is the message. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him. Who? Him who what? Made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. The Creator. The Creator. The eternal good news is fear God and worship Him. That's the good news of salvation, that God can be reverenced and God can be worshipped. God can be glorified. The sinner can come and be brought into a capacity to know God and to adore God and to glorify God through the forgiveness of sins. The angel will preach the age-old gospel. And the age-old gospel is this, folks. The Creator has become our Redeemer. The Creator has become our Redeemer. The same God who created in the end, we'll be bringing judgment in anticipation of His recreation. This is the constant identification of Scripture, that the Creator is the Redeemer, that the Redeemer is none other than the Creator who created absolutely everything. I can't, I can't leave out Nehemiah because it sums it up. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5, all these Levites get together and they say, Arise and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may thy glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Listen to this. Thou alone, here's their praise, Thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them. And the heavenly host bows down before Thee. Thou art the Lord. That's how it is always in Scripture. Always. God is given full credit and full glory for the creation. How did He do it? Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He just spoke, verse 9, and it was done. He commanded and it was established. Psalm 33. There are two great passages in the book of Acts in which Paul makes this so abundantly clear. In Acts 14 and verse 15, there Paul and Barnabas are preaching in the pagan environment at Lystra, where the people worship the typical gods of the day. And they uh, say to the people, we are men of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. What God? The God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It was on Mars Hill in Acts 17 that Paul ran into the philosophers. He had to establish an altar to the unknown God just in case they left somebody out. 
in their pantheon of deities. So he said, let me tell you about the God you don't know. I'll tell you about him. Verse 24, he's the God who made the world and all things in it. That's who he is. He's the God who made the world and all things in it. You know, it's not as if this is some obscure statement, right? Every time you come to these passages, it's comprehensive and it is exclusive of any evolutionary process. God created everything and everything that exists, God created. Scripture repeatedly identifies God as the Creator. Now, with all that in your mind, let's go back to Genesis 1.1. This simple statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Folks, you either believe that or you don't. Given that statement and the multiplicity of other statements that I just read to you, if you don't believe this, then you have a lot of other things in the Bible not to believe. You know, it really wearies me to hear the critics assault the Bible. Flying in late last night, I read an absolutely ridiculous article in U.S. News and World Report about the Apostle Paul, which totally misrepresented the Word of God, misrepresented him, and were the foolish musings of Christ-denying and godless men. And they do the same thing to the book of Genesis. And some of us, and they all pass themselves off as religious scholars. It is widely held that the Genesis creation account needs to be taken not as literal history, but that it is some kind of Hebrew poetry that is allegorical. Well, if that's true, then you're going to have to allegorize all those other passages too. But this is the scholarly approach. Well, we don't take this as actual history here that God actually created in six days. This is, this is Hebrew poetry. Douglas Kelly, who has written absolutely outstanding book to which I shall be continually indebted in this series called Creation and Change, says, many biblical interpreters have attempted to avoid the obvious conflict between a straightforward reading of the text of Genesis and opposing naturalist theories of origins. They have done so by suggesting that Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and especially the first three chapters, are poetic writings rather than chronological history. This position is surprisingly common among people who generally hold to a high view of scriptural authority. That's pretty amazing. The great scholar of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, I cut my teeth on many of his writings as a student, Edward J. Young, an authority of, frankly, massive erudition in Hebrew and cognate languages, responds to these claims that Genesis 1 to 3 is poetry rather than serious history. Edward Young addressed the question in his writing, is Genesis poetry or myth? And this is what he said. To escape from the plain factual statements of Genesis, some evangelicals are saying that the early chapters of Genesis are poetry or myth, by which they mean that they are not to be taken as straightforward accounts and that the acceptance of such a view removes the difficulties. To adopt such a view, they say, removes all troubles with modern science. Then Young says, Genesis is not poetry. There are more poetical accounts of creation in the Bible, such as Psalm 104, certain chapters of Job, and they differ completely from the first chapter of Genesis. Hebrew poetry has certain characteristics, and they are not found in the first chapter of Genesis. So the claim that Genesis 1 is poetry is no solution at all. 
The man who says, I believe that Genesis purports to be a historical account, but I do not believe that account, is a far better interpreter of the Bible than the man who says, I believe Genesis is profoundly true, but it is poetry." End quote. So don't give us any of that nonsense about poetry. Just say you don't believe it. That's a better approach. Genesis 1 is not written according to the laws of Hebrew poetry. You can find lots of passages in the Old Testament that are. This isn't. There are no usages of the typical traditional types of parallelism that occur in Hebrew poetry. And Douglas Kelly says, no amount of exegetical straining can find the slightest poetic view of Genesis 1 to 11 in the books of the New Testament. If it was poetry, we would expect the New Testament writers to assume that it was poetry and to treat it as poetry. But when you read the New Testament writers commenting on Genesis, it is obvious that they take it as history. Henry Morris summarizes the New Testament usage of the old in this way. He says, the New Testament is, if anything, even more dependent on Genesis than the old. There are at least 165 passages in Genesis that are either directly quoted or clearly referred to in the New Testament. Many of them are alluded to more than once, so that there are at least 200 quotations or references to Genesis in the New Testament. It is significant that the portion of Genesis which has been the object of the greatest attacks of skepticism and unbelief, the first 11 chapters, is the portion which had the greatest influence on the New Testament. There exist over 100 quotations or direct references to Genesis 1 through 11 in the New Testament. Furthermore, every one of those 11 chapters is alluded to somewhere in the New Testament, and every one of the New Testament authors refers somewhere in his writings to Genesis 1 to 11, every New Testament author. On at least six different occasions, Jesus Christ Himself quoted from or referred to something or someone in one of those eleven chapters, six different times, including specific references to each of the first seven chapters. Furthermore, in not one of these many instances where the Old or New Testament refers to Genesis, is there the slightest evidence that the writers regarded the events or personages as myths or allegories. To the contrary, they all viewed Genesis as absolutely historical, true, and authoritative." End quote. Thank you, Henry. That's good stuff. Walter Brown lists some 71 New Testament references to the early chapters of Genesis and concludes, here's his conclusion, Every New Testament writer refers to the early chapters of Genesis, every one. Jesus Christ referred to each of the first seven chapters of Genesis. All New Testament books, except Galatians, Philippians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John, refer to Genesis 1 to 11. Every chapter of Genesis 1 to 11, except chapter 8, is referred to specifically somewhere in the New Testament. Every New Testament writer apparently accepted those early chapters as historically accurate. Now, if you go back to the book of Genesis for a moment, the outline of Genesis further supports the historicity of the first chapters. And I'll kind of uh, try to end with this. <laughs> i got the best stuff ahead of me here. 
But if you just outline the book of Genesis, chapters 1 to 11, primitive history. Chapters 12 to 50, patriarchal history. That's where Abraham, Isaac, uh, and all the way through to Joseph, Jacob and Joseph. You have primitive history, creation, fall, flood, dispersion. You have patriarchal history, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. It's very well divided. Nobody will argue that 12 to 50 is history. Why do they argue that 1 to 11 is history? They really don't want to argue that the flood was not history because there are so many evidences of it. They don't necessarily want to argue that the dispersion, Tower of Babel and the nations in the language, is not history. There has to be some explanation for the diversity of languages and nations. But what they really want to argue with has to do with the first three chapters of Genesis, and what they are most concerned to argue with is creation. They think that science has made its point and debunked the Bible. But Genesis is history. Primitive history, 1 to 11. Patriarchal history, 12 to 50. In fact, I give you a little fast, this is a fast lesson in Genesis. Look at chapter 5. The word generation is genealogy, history, history. Chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9, these are the records of the genealogy of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1, these are the records of the genealogy of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 11, verse 10, these are the records of the generations of Shem. Verse 27, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Chapter 25, I think that's the next one. And uh, verse 12, yes, these are the records of the generations of Ishmael. Verse 19, these are the records of the generations of Isaac. And so it goes. Chapter 36, these are the records of the generation or genealogies of Esau. Verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Esau, again indicated. Chapter 37, verse 2, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. You can just divide this entire book into historical records. It's what it is. If you go backwards, you go from the history of Joseph to Jacob to Esau to Isaac to Ishmael to Abraham to Terah to Shem, Ham, Japheth, Noah, Adam, God. That's how it goes. It's history. It's ludicrous when there are so many clear-cut statements that this is history to make the history part that has to do with God myth. Well, that's enough. There's more next time. I'll get to verse 1. Let's pray together. Strengthen our faith, Lord, through this and our trust and confidence in You and Your greatness. We praise You that You are the Creator-Redeemer. That's who You are. And that's how you want to be known and worshipped and glorified. We praise you for your creation and your redemption.
Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
That was Fruit of Spirit. And before that, we had Glory and the Buff by Goldfish. You want to find out about Goldfish, go to goldfishguys.com, G-O-F-I-S-H-G-U-I-S dot C-O-M, goldfishguys.com. Thanks for listening. We must control it here on Trippy Toll Radio. To find our website at truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com. And let's see what I'm going to do next. I am going to play, this is from Wretched. It says, how did the early church determine which books should be in the Bible? Here on Truthy Toll Radio. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Freedom. Just sitting here being smug. This oh. is Wretched Radio. Uh, Tony, what what was 1546. All righty then. Uh, the Book of Enoch, canonized 1546. Yep. It did appear in the Vulgate, Jerome's translation into Latin of the Bible. Luther, he kept it in his Bible, but not as canonized books, but as apocryphal books. We can learn some stuff from them, but they're not on the level of Scripture. How did we determine which books should be in the Bible? There's a very precise answer to that. When the early church got together, the reason that they had to conclude these are the books is because so many false suitors were coming along. You see, in the first century, there was already an agreed-upon group of books that people knew this is definitely written by an apostle. This is, this is a word that is reliable and true. But then a bunch of other people started writing books. And so the church had to go, all right, we better set the record straight here and canonize. We need to read a standard for which books should be in and which books should be rejected. And so the read, the standard, was, I, I believe, was four-pronged. But was it written by an apostle or an immediate follower, a disciple of an apostle? How close to the time of the events was it written? Uh, does it align with the rest of the Bible? And there's a, there's a fourth, there might even be a fifth, but there's a, there's a fourth read, a fourth standard that is used. And I remember when I first heard this, I went, what? Well, that seems kind of like circular. And the, the standard that was used by the early church, now don't panic at this or don't go, was it like a mystical feeling? The standard was it felt like scripture. It just felt like it. It sounded elegant and different. Now, there were varying degrees of education among the Bible writers. No question about it. Paul was a very educated man. Peter, not so much. And yet you read Peter and you go, wow, that's just amazing stuff. You read apocryphal books every time. I guarantee you're going to go, okay, I, it's like doing a, a Bible impersonation. It's trying to sound like the Bible, but it's just not. And that is precisely what was determined about the book of Enoch. It didn't make it in. There are multiple books, and they're called the apocryphal books, that didn't make it in. Now, there's pseudepigraphal books. Those are even wonkier than apocryphal books that are way outside of Scripture. Now, how do we learn something from these books when they're not actually inspired Scripture? I think the one that is most profitable, that is most helpful, is the Didache. This is the book that many people believe was really the catechism of the early church. How they did church. A recording of the order of service. How they behaved in the church. We can learn from that, can't we? Not inspired scripture, but we can learn. Now, 
you're saying, what does that sound like? Not sounding like scripture. Glad you asked. So I looked up the book of Enoch while I was gloating during the break when Tony discovered I was right. Yes, he was. 1500s, the book of Enoch was included in the Roman Catholic no. Bible, but not in the Protestant Apocrypha. Bible. The Apo- what did I say? The book of Enoch is not in the Apocrypha. What is it considered? The book of Enoch is separate. It's just a separate thing. Yeah. But it's not in yeah, that's the, one that, the Bible. That uh, would be deuterocanonical. Thank you. Well done, both or of pseudepigrapha. you two together. Let me read you. I went to the website, to the Google machine, and I'll, I'll just read Chapter 5. I just grabbed it randomly. Observe ye how the trees cover themselves with green leaves and bear fruit. Wherefore, give heed and know with regard to all his works, and recognize how he that liveth forever hath made them so. Okay, you go, well, you know, it's a little bit King Jamesy sounding, for starters. But you go, well, it kind of sounds like the Bible exactly. It kind of does, but it doesn't. Sure does. And all his works go on thus from year to year forever, and all the tasks which they accomplish for him, and their tasks change not, but according as God hath ordained, so is it done. You go read Ecclesiastes, and as challenging as it can be to understand that book, it just sounds different, doesn't it? For whatever this is worth, there are a lot of people these days who try to sound like they're receiving a word from the Lord. Send in to idea at wretchedradio.com. Angie, thank you. She sends a lot of tweets. There are regular times when I want to somehow lurch through, just lunge through my computer, find Angie and tell her, stop it. And there are other times when I'm really grateful because she sends a lot of great tweets, but she sends some that just make my eyes roll. For instance, and she does it on purpose, there is a prophet out there who claims to hear from God today. His name is Ryan Lestrange. Do not make jokes. They're just too obvious. I've already been there. Ryan Lestrange. Myself. Here's a word that he received, which means this is God-inspired Does this sound God-inspired? Here's his tweet. I see heavenly lightning strikes falling on dry ground and igniting raging fires of deliverance and revival. All of the typical blah-bitty-blah-bitty-blah new apostolic words means, what does this even mean? I see heavenly lightning strikes falling on dry ground. Well, why not money ground? That's going in my song. What is that? (laughs) (laughs) And igniting raging fires of deliverance and revival. Honestly, it's it's just I I I I'll I'll do one. Okay, let me just get a word. I still think it's sinuses. Now I I see the heavenly realms of the places containing great wisdom, desiring the accomplishment. Of the nations. Oh, and it made no sense whatsoever. Bingo. What doesn't sound like the Bible was set aside because it is not the Bible, and that includes the book of Enoch. Keep sending stuff to idea at wretchedradio.com. Idea at wretched. Oh! Well, there it is. Not my Zaxby's, which I'm still waiting for. Okay. Somebody cleaned my desk. That is not a good thing to do because I know it looks basically like a tornado went through the place, but I know where it is. It's they an put, organized mess. My, it was an organized mess. Oh. Yeah, okay, you hear this? All of this stuff. This is, this, 
This is what we call in the biz, man, show prep. And I've just been buried underneath. <laughs> I need to send a strongly worded letter to whoever straightened out my desk. Send emails to idea at wretchedradio.com, idea at wretchedradio.com. What they meant for good turned out to be for, for evil. You can look that up in Genesis 59 if you would like to. Uh, this is, mm, sorry about this. This this is written in from Wes. I'm an epileptic. I have a seizure or two each month, so I can't drive, but I can keep my job as a public school teacher. I'm glad for that. Doctors have said that there are testimonies indicating that medical marijuana has minimized or eliminated seizures for some epileptics. Should I, as a Christian, use medical marijuana? That is a fascinating question. I see that as long as I'm in submission to authority, I'm free to use it. On the other hand, I'm convinced by the principle taught in 1 Corinthians 8 that my knowledge of that freedom can cause others to stumble. Yes, so I choose other medications to manage my seizures, even though they don't work as well as cannabis. All right. This is an interesting conundrum. How do we make our way through this? Well, I think we need to remember what the Bible teaches uh, about medicine, that it is a blessing. God made medicine. So it is a blessing. And we need to be careful that our perceptions of categories don't taint our application of that. Do I believe that a Christian has liberty to smoke marijuana? To that I say no. Why? Because its intended purpose is to make you drunk, buzzed, to not be thinking straightly. And the Christian, we should be the straightest thinkers, period. That's why we don't get drunk. That's why we don't take hallucinogenics, including marijuana. And yet... Are there not some medications that we use that have that same purpose? Morphine, fentanyl, opium. Those are drugs that we actually administer, and nobody goes, whoa, we shouldn't be doing that. Why? What's the difference? I think because of the delivery mechanism, it does play a role in this. They are given by people who try to, first of all, they understand what the levels are when you smoke a joint, you don't. How many puffs, how many tokes, whatever you call it. How strong is it? What are your... So it, it's unsupervised, and, the, and the, the reality is you're probably just going to get buzzed from it. Now, it might help the symptoms. So how should a Christian, if indeed we have liberty to consume something like the marijuana plant, go about doing that if, this is my opinion... If you can do that, consume marijuana, I don't think smoking is a good idea, but if you can consume it in some form because it's supervised, there is a prescription that goes with it, there is an amount that has been determined as appropriate for your symptoms, and if it doesn't cause you to get hooked, which it can, if you're, because if it's ongoing, just like opium in a hospital or, or morphine in a hospital, you're going to get hooked, you've got to consider all of those things. Could you possibly take it? Yes, if it doesn't cause you to get hooked and uh, be acting dopey all the time. But if you're going to even consider that, I think you can consider it under medical supervision. Now, was that an open door to go try it? Do, no. What I'm saying is proceed with a great deal of caution, and you might ultimately conclude it can't be done because of the addictive element of marijuana. This is Wretched Radio. Thanks for listening to the Wretched Segment du Jour. If you'd like more Wretched, you can listen to the most current stream for free at wretched.tv listen 
or you can become a club member and listen to our entire archive. Wretched, reaching the lost, equipping the saints, and strengthening the local church. Once again, that was Wretched. See you on Wretched.tv. Wretched.tv. And now I'm going to do one from when we understand the text here on Truth Be Told Radio. Chester Bennington, lead singer of the band Linkin Park, sold over 70 million albums and died of suicide at the age of 41. Chris Cornell, lead singer of the band Soundgarden and Audio Slave, sold more than 30 million albums worldwide. He hung himself at the age of 52. Story after story of rock stars who killed themselves or say they struggle daily with depression show that fame and fortune, attention and admiration do not lead to happiness. The wise King Solomon wrote, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He who loves money will not be satisfied, nor he who loves wealth. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing in all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the things you need will be added to you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light when we understand the text. For millions who suffer from depression and despair, there is a better way. Visit www.theexitmovie.com. Dot com. That's a website for movie from Ray Comfort. It's about um, suicide. So if you're considering that, I urge you today to get help if you have suicidal feelings. And see, I myself had um, gone through hospital suicide with suicidal feelings like that, um, medicine help with that, and reach out to somebody today if you feel that way. Let's see, I am going to, let's see, let's just find the, the exit movie. Let's find out where their ad is but, uh, right now. I am going to play Answers in Genesis here. Truth be told, right? Atheism is a religion. This is Ken Ham. 
the president of the ministry behind the popular Answers Bible curriculum. Many atheists insist that their belief system isn't a religion. They say it's a non-belief. But a definition of a religion is a cause, principle, or system of belief held to with ardor and faith. Now, atheists believe life arose by natural processes and that life comes from non-life. But neither of these beliefs has ever been confirmed by science. They believe there is no God, no supernatural, and that everything is the result of natural processes. This belief system, called naturalism, cannot be proven. In their view, morality is a result of man's opinions not grounded in any ultimate authority. Atheism is based on belief. Yes, it is a religion. Sign up for free insights from Ken Ham delivered to your inbox each day when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. For more faith-building answers, go to AnswersRadio.com. I have a Bible that I read. I know the truth and I believe. I go to church with my friends. I have a job.
you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, I encourage you to remember three very important things. Firstly, you have worth. You're not a cosmic accident. You're not here by chance. The Bible says that God, who is the essence of love, formed you in your mother's womb and you're made in his image. You're unique and handcrafted by the Creator. And because of that, your life has meaning. No matter where you've been or what's happened or what you've done, nothing can ever erase the incredible value God has placed on you as his creation and image bearer. Secondly, there is hope. The Bible tells us that by trusting in Jesus, we have a living hope, a hope that's an anchor for the soul. If you don't know God personally, you can through genuine repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Your sins will be washed away. His Spirit will come to live within you, and He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And you'll be given a new heart with new desires. Again, the Bible tells us that God is love. The meaning and purpose of your life is to truly love God and walk with Him. You can find healing, forgiveness, and hope in Christ. And thirdly, help is available. Like a mold of the soul, severe depression grows in the cold dampness of isolation. Please open up. Reach out for support. You can tell those closest to you. Confide in a parent, relative, or a friend, or school counselor, or find a respected Christian doctor or professional counselor. Dragging a heavy load by yourself can be overwhelming, but if you let someone help you carry your burden, it becomes far lighter. Or you could call a hotline. You could call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline and talk with someone right now. It's free, it's confidential, and available 24-7. You can call them at 800-273-8255 or visit them online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. You could speak with a local pastor. If you don't attend a Christian church, visit theexitmovie.com and click on the Help tab to help you find a church in your area. Please, whatever you do, oh please, don't end your life. This is Chippy Tall Radio that's from Living Waters the Exit movie um called Don't End Your Life. Um, it's, it's a video from Living Waters uh, YouTube page. Vegas supposed to go with the exit movie. Not exactly on it. I'm not sure if it's on it yet. I haven't seen it yet. I wanna see it though. Let's see. Now I am going to play from when we understand a text. What? Verifiable miracles? Question mark here on Trippy Tori. charismatic gatherings are not producing the kinds of miracles the apostles did. Instead of being obvious supernatural signs like we read about in the New Testament, their own teachers have to admit it's mostly fake. In the last 20 years, I have concluded in manifestation meetings all over the world, again, I've been to several thousand of them, a couple thousand at least, that 80% of them are not real, but 20% of them are. They're more fake than that, but I digress. Let's say you attended one of these gatherings and you did witness a verifiable miracle or vision or prophecy. Would that confirm these teachers actually have the apostolic gifts? 
Deuteronomy 13 says this, If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and it comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments, obey his voice, and serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's taught rebellion against the Lord. That doesn't mean he should be dragged out of the parking lot and stoned. But if he doesn't repent, he'll receive a far worse sentence on the day of judgment. What's more serious than performing false miracles is teaching a false gospel. And many of these teachers do, claiming the gospel is health and wealth. Do not follow them, or the judgment on their head will also be on yours when we understand the text. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God
Atheism, it's growing in our nation. This is Ken Ham, and our popular life-size Noah's Ark is now open in northern Kentucky. Yesterday we learned that atheism is actually a religion. Many atheists get upset if you call it that. Why? Well, they don't want it recognized as a religion because atheism and naturalism are the religions being taught to millions of kids every day in public schools. But many atheists insist that schools aren't supposed to teach religion. So they couldn't teach evolution and naturalism if it was recognized as the religion that it is. Sadly, due in part to the teaching of atheism in the public schools, atheism is growing across Western nations. But there aren't any true atheists. Romans 1 tells us everyone knows there's a God. Some people just suppress the truth. They need the gospel. Learn more about God's Word, Christianity, and apologetics at AnswersRadio.com. Get answers to your questions about origins, Genesis, the flood, and more at AnswersRadio.com.
only two religions. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's Word. The beliefs of atheism and naturalism can be added to the list of religions around the world. But did you know there are actually only two religions? They can be summed up as God's Word and man's Word. God's religion is given to us in the Bible, His revelation to us, and is seen clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. But since sin, mankind has always developed his own religions. These are false religions. They all start with man's word instead of God's word. Many atheists battle against Christianity. But why do they care if we die and that's it? Well, they care because the Bible's true. It says we're fighting a spiritual battle, and that's what we're seeing playing out all around us. Sign up for free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Be encouraged and equipped when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
Are visits to heaven real? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on science and the Bible's reliability. Many popular books and even some movies recount near-death experiences where a person supposedly went to heaven and then came back again. Are these visits real? Well, we need to compare everything to God's Word. In Scripture, any vision of heaven focuses on God's glory and the unworthiness of man to even be in His presence. There's no focus on loved ones or the fun things we might get to do there. It's all about God, as it should be. But these stories of supposed visits to heaven focus on distinctly human things like loved ones or how the person felt during his experience. Instead of getting our doctrine of heaven from books and movies, we need to get it from God's Word. Get more Bible-based teaching when you go to AnswersRadio.com and find out more about our Noah's Ark when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. AnswersRadio.com A baby dilemma. If you have a dilemma, baby or otherwise, send it to dilemma at wretched.tv. Before you get to see what I have seen with this baby dilemma, permit me to make sure that none of us thinks, oh, what were these two thinking of? You see, before you get married, I believe it is wise to make sure that you're on the same page with some issues, starting with salvation. If you marry an unbeliever, you are not only making a very big mistake, you are sinning because we are not supposed to be in that sort of intimate relationship with an unbeliever. doesn't mean we don't have pagan friends, but it means that we don't join in a very close partnership with somebody who's not saved. To do so is to sin and simply beg for years of trouble. However, there are more things that I think you would be wise to work out now that you've jumped over the first hurdle of salvation what are some of the other issues that you should be on the same page about what sort of issues should you be on the same sort of page? Look, I actually get annoyed with myself for being a grammar Nazi on occasion. There are other things like theology. Not every single issue, but let's just say for fun. Somebody in the relationship is a Calvinist. Somebody's an Arminian. Well, how's that going to work? What church are you going to attend? What sort of preaching are you going to listen to? It could cause this. One of you is a Baptist. The other one is a Presbyterian. What are you going to do with those babies? You're going to pay to them or wait and do what the Bible says and have them baptized after they've repented and put their trust in Jesus? I love you, my Presbyterian friends. The point is you should be on the same page with as many of these issues as possible specifically the essentials, but also the ones that could simply cause a lot of headbanging. Eschatology probably doesn't rise to that level. One of you likes contemporary and hymns, probably a compromise issue you could work through. But there are going to be some things, like baptism or election, not election, that could cause years of strife, and you should work through those before you say, I do. There is another level of issues that I would encourage any young couple to consider and work through before they walk the aisle, and that issue would be the issue of 
children. How many kids are you going to have? Are you going to have any children? How are you going to raise them? Can a couple stay married if they're not on the same page? Yeah, but I got to tell you, somebody's in for a lot of heartache if you are on different teams regarding children. She wants seven. He wants none, two, whatever. You're going to be fighting over this stuff, and these are big issues that are important, and sure, time might work them out, but time might not work them out, and I would encourage anybody to work through the issue of children before getting married. Having said all that, our baby dilemma from Ms. Anonymous is not that she made an error by being on a different page with her husband before getting married regarding children. They actually were on the same page. So well done for talking it through and having a consensus. But now one of their hearts has changed. Here's the dilemma. I've been married to my husband for several years. Before we were married, neither of us had any desire to have children. But since we've been married, my desires have changed. He has not changed his mind. I pray constantly for God's will. Does the Lord really want us to have children? This burden weighs me down constantly, and I feel guilty for praying for a child. Uh, For a moment, imagine you are a pastor. This young lady walks into your office and she bears her soul explaining the pain that she is feeling because her husband doesn't want to have kids. How would you counsel her? That is what your pastor faces every single day. Complexities in human relationships that would make your mind simply just become like a scrambled egg. Be praying for your pastor. Here are six thoughts for this young lady. Number one, do not feel guilty for praying. You're praying for a good thing. It's not wrong to pray that your husband will desire to have children like you. There's nothing wrong with that prayer because you're praying for a good thing. If and however you pray that your husband will die in a fiery car crash on the way home so that you can marry a guy who wants a full quiver, that is not the right kind of prayer. But don't feel guilty ever for asking God for your heart's desire. If it is in alignment with God's word and God's will, his answer might very well be yes. It could be no, or it could be later. But pray, ask, seek, and knock a lot, and do not feel guilty for that consideration. Number two, do not turn your desire into an idol. This is a line we all have to watch. We can cross this one very quickly and get mowed down. Why? God wants to be the idol in our life. As good as children are, as wonderful as babies are, as terrific as they smell, and They do smell good, don't they? You don't want your child to be an idol. So if that has become an idol in your heart, it's something you need to repent of. It doesn't mean you lose your desire to have a child, but what it does mean is that you have that desire in its proper order. Consideration. And number three, understand his feelings. Just try to put yourself in his shoes. Remember, 
you agreed before you got married, we're not going to have children. Now you've changed your tune. You could imagine that he's maybe like, uh, we talked about this. What's the deal? It will allow you to be considerate and not to simply be angry consideration. And number four, lovingly and patiently teach him that God, as a rule, wants married couples to make babies. Unless God has given you the gift of singleness, unless God has caused you for some reason to not be able to have children, I think he wants most, if not all, married couples to have kids. That is how we are made. That is why we are here, to make little God glorifiers who love Jesus so that he could get more glory. I would encourage you to try to teach, yes, you can teach your husband some things, madam, him the glorious privilege of having children. You could invite men in the church or pastors not to be subversive, but to walk alongside of him and to teach him biblically, I believe, the mandate, the privilege to have children. And maybe God will use that to change his heart consideration. And number five, discuss this with your elders or an older couple at church. Ask them for advice, wisdom. Ask them about your tone. Ask them about your tact. Ask them about your desires. How are you behaving? How are you approaching the situation? Let others who have perhaps walked down the same road clear a path for you so that you don't get lost in the woods. And finally, this thought, find a discipler who can help you with your good desires. This is what the church is about. What you're going through, it's an emotional issue that can be very painful. There's no shame in going to another believer to say, would you please walk alongside me? You're more mature. You've had more years. Would you please disciple me? And that way you can make your way through this issue, whether your husband changes his mind or not, but you will make it through, not sinning, at least as, 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 as much as you possibly could. Uh, did you know that Jesus Unmasked now has a Sunday school study guide? According to the experts, Jesus Unmasked Sunday School Guide. I'm pretending to actually read that, but I'm making it up. The Jesus Unmasked Sunday School Guide is the single best Sunday school curriculum ever created in the history of Sunday school curriculum. Wow, that's what they say. Those are the same people who say that we're being tracked by the government. If you're getting ready for Sunday school, Jesus Unmasked now has a study guide showing Jesus in every book in the Old Testament. Your class will love it. They will be convinced, persuaded, and assured that the Bible is the supernatural Word of God and Jesus is the promised Savior, beginning in Genesis 1. Take it from them. Get the Jesus Unmasked Sunday School Curriculum. That was from Wretched.tv. Um, that was actually on their YouTube page called When One, uh, One Spouse, One's Children. Mm. But they also have it on their website, Wretched.tv. And find that at W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.tv, Wretched.tv. 
And let's see. Well, that's about it for Truth Be Told Radio. I'm going to go out with Yancey and Friends with the VI Really. Bye for now. The beat.